Amen. That's one of my songs I'm going to be singing in heaven. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yes. Uh, If we could have our kiddos want to go downstairs, Miss Brooke is back. It's going to be a great, great time. We got papers here. Clear the desk off. Well, if you wanted to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we're going to be flipping through some areas, but this is going to be the main main um, place we will be focusing on. Uncertainties of life. How many have had some uncertainties in your life? Well, good. That's all of us. I wanted to start with this quote here today. Um, and I want us to read this together, if you don't mind. This is a beautiful, beautiful quote, if we want to read this together. You ready? Churches are not museums that display perfect people. They are hospitals where the wounded, hurt, injured, and broken find healing. That's uh, an amazing quote, and I absolutely love that. And I wanted to start with Ecclesiastes 11 and kind of sending that thought or idea off for our churches Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 says, Send your grain across the seas, and in time profits will flow back to you. But divide your investments among many placements, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. When clouds are heavy, the rains come down. Whether the tree falls north or south, it stays where it falls. Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. And just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of the tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, So you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know don't know if it'll profit will come from one activity or another, or maybe both. Now there's a lot of different places and areas we could take that particular verse of scripture to, but one thing that I wanted us to understand is this idea of kind of having a perfect approach to life, waiting for things to be perfect for us to get anything done in life. How many have had perfect conditions? happen in your life. It doesn't happen that way. No one's perfect. I don't know if you guys all know that, but no one's perfect in here. But I want us to think of our churches in a way uh, like a hospital once again, and understanding that when we go and start doing things for the Lord, and our progress, uh, it is not based on getting everything right. That's That's the elephant in the room, is we think everything has to be right in order for it to be accomplished. And I heard a quote by a by a writer in Relevant Magazine, and it said this, What does the death of the church and the Christian life, I recently heard a pastor ask? His answer caused me to do an out loud hmm. He didn't say the death of the Christian life is a lack of prayer or Bible study. He didn't say the death of the church was poor leadership or low attendance. No, the thing that will surely kill the church in your Christian walk is this, pretending. Just imagine if hospitals 2,000 years from now Looked like what many churches do today. People enter the hospital doors, bleeding, ill, miserable, and afraid. Someone greets them cheerfully at the door, ushers them to a seat, and in the waiting room, and there they sit. The wounded don't tell anyone what's wrong with them, and no employee asks them what's wrong. Instead, they remain seated by a fellow sick people in the waiting room, all pretending they're fine. Everyone acts oblivious to everyone else's pain until they're dismissed to leave, and each patient returns home with the same ailment he or she arrived with. It doesn't even make sense, right? I wonder at what point did Christianity become about being good and making sure others perceive us as doing good things? At what point did church become a place for people to come and pretend that they aren't sick? When we look at Christ, we see such an opposite example. 
It is not the healthy who need a doctor, he said, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If we pretend we're not sinners, Jesus can't heal us. But when we start being honest with our lives, with God, with others, and even those we lead, we can experience the healing that was always meant to be ours. Isn't that pretty amazing? I kind of get a picture. I went to the immediate care. How many have been in the immediate care at least once this last couple months here? A lot of people in this place. Stay as far away from it as you can, but the immediate cares are full of sick people. Uh, It's estimated that 16 million people in the United States have missed work for a combined total on average of four days and by an an average loss of $52 billion. We've got a lot of sickness going on. But the not-so-perfect Christian life in Ecclesiastes 1 through 6 It's amazing how many many of us, we try to be perfect. Seth Goodwin writes this, Perfect leaves you stall, ask more questions, do more reviews, dumb it down, safe it up, and generally avoid doing anything that might fail or anything important. You're not in the perfect business. Stop pretending that that's what the world wants from you. I think many times in the church we're really horrible at this because even when it comes to selecting leaders, I do realize that the Bible gives us examples of what the elders and the, and the deacons are supposed to be. And in fact, it tells them kind of what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be. He's very direct on that. But I want to tell you that in your development, still no one is perfect. And God calling you out, many of us have disqualified our very lives because we said we're not perfect or we failed in that area of our life. You don't have to respond, but how many people have failed this week at something? Brené Brown says this, Perfectionism is not the same thing as striving to be your best. Perfectionism is the belief that if we live perfect, look perfect, act perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. It's a shield. It's a 20-pound shield that we lug around thinking it will protect us, when in fact it's the thing that is really preventing us from flight. And I think so often people get afraid to come to church or be involved with church or do anything because they say, well, I don't want to pray because I don't pray right. How many have felt that before? We don't want to speak because we don't want to, we will say it wrong. We don't want to testify because well, somebody might misunderstand my testimony. I thought what was really neat in the group of men that we had this last week, I think for the first time in a few weeks, it was neat because Jim opened the Word, we were fellowshipping, we were eating Uncle Clay's barbecue. Isn't it amazing what food will do? It will just open people up. What the guys didn't know, they put a little secret testimony sauce in there. But it was great. But guys just started opening up about things. They started talking about things. They started sharing their testimony. And what we found is they weren't perfect. But here was what was beautiful about it, is that they were striving for something that was greater than themselves. How many of you have disqualified yourself from something that you didn't feel qualified for? And here's the neat thing is you don't, you're not the one who qualifies. It's God who qualifies. You and I aren't the one who call. It's God who calls. And that's how come when God roves throughout the earth looking for someone to use, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He uses people on streets and back roads and places. He uses unsuspecting candidates that are willing to be used of God. They are definitely not perfect. Hit somebody and say, I am definitely not perfect. 
We've all heard it said before about perfect churches that if you've showed up to the perfect church, leave because you're going to really mess it up. And many times in our lives we feel like something's happened, something's been destroyed, and so we quit. And that's the problem is that we quit. And one of the things that's very important about a believer, and this is the tenacity that I want to see with every believer, if you fall down, promise me that you will get back up. If you fail, and if you failed miserably last week, get back up. God hasn't quit on you yet. You are not disqualified because of that sin. You are not disqualified because of what you thought about something before. You are not disqualified even though other people around you disqualify you. God has not disqualified you. Rutler Kipling said this poem to his child. He said, if you can bear to hear the truth, you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Or watch the things that you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings. And risk it on one term of pitch and toss. And lose and start again at your beginnings. And never breathe a word about your loss. You'll be a man my son. You'll be a man. If when you've failed and you've lost everything. And you've lost miserably. You don't count it loss. But you look forward to the opportunity to building and growing again. God doesn't want you to quit. I don't want you to quit. Turning Point Church doesn't want you to quit. Say, I had a setback again and again and again. You're not disqualified. Keep struggling. The fact that it bothers you and that you struggle with it is a good thing. If it didn't bother you, it would be a bad thing, right? But the Holy Spirit within you is wanting to draw things out of you and say, it's okay because the minute that that thing gets fixed, let me tell you something. There's four things that you're not recognizing now that God's going to work in you. You will never be perfect this side of eternity. It is a terrible lie. And so what the church does in conveying what they call truth, they're actually perpetrating condemnation. There is therefore not no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinner. He didn't come for the clean and the perfect and the pure. He came for those who were desperately wicked and trespasses and sins and recognized that they need a Savior. But you've lost, so what? God's called you to be a winner. And you are qualified. You are not defeated. You are not disqualified. Start again. Start to build. Build your family. Build. 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 Start doing something. Turn to someone and say, start doing something, will you? Some of us have sat down and we've waited for someone else to do something for us. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10. Why don't you turn there real quick? Do not despise. This is one of my beautiful verses I love. 
God loves to see work get started. You know that? That's why I love this church, work get started. i got to tell you, I go through a really tough patch. After Christmas is over, I kind of get into this lull in January and February. Don't you kind of, does anybody like that? Are they like they're with me? It's kind of, it's just dropped. It's like the ceiling just dropped, the floor just dropped, and it's like all the air is taken out of you, and it's now what? And it's kind of a hard time because there's that resting period. And how many need some rest sometimes? Resting is okay. Resting is a good thing. You need rest. But you enjoy to start to see the work start again. And I love it. It says, do not despise these small beginnings. How many of you got small beginnings going on? You don't see a lot of light, but you see just enough to keep you going. And let me tell you something. That's all you need. All you need is a little light. All you need is a little hope. All you need is a little desire. All you need is a little opportunity. And that's all you need. The Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Some of us with our lives, and we've maybe disqualified ourselves from some areas, we've given up, we've not pushed forward and pushed through. God loves to see the work get started. I've shared this before. I've got a little plastic box in my office, and it's got Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, and it's got 60 of our original carefree customers that are in that box, just 60 of them. And it's, I always held on to that, and I said, I never want to lose that. And all our technology, I'll never forget when we first started, Anne would take the calls from people, and she would know their names, and uh, it was just a really neat thing. But there's 60 people in there. Some of our original people are still with us. And on that little box has got that little verse that says, Never forsake the day of small beginnings. We never knew where the business would be and where it would grow or how it would be, but it was just step upon step and moving forward and the things that God has for us. Don't ever forsake the day of small beginnings, folks. That small thing is a big thing. God loves to see the work started. Nehemiah chapter 2, let's turn there real quick. For some of us, though, the work can mean a four-letter word. It is a four-letter word, but you know what I'm saying. Ezra, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Work is a good thing. I know some of us might have been taught to work less is a better thing, but you were never meant to not work. You were never meant to sit on like a bump on a log. You were meant to work. You were meant to get involved with people's lives. Your life is of too much value to not work. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Yeah, that's not a good thing. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick. You don't look sick to me. You must be terribly troubled. And then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king, how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone, and will you return? And after I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. 
I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have the letters addressed to the governors of the province west of Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through the territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Aspa, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, for my house, and for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. And so it goes on and on. But the very thing that's amazing to me is that Nehemiah had something that God had given him to do. Don't forsake the day of small beginnings. Some people, by the way, might not be excited about your rebuilding efforts. Have you ever started something, came up with maybe a positive attitude about something, maybe a good outlook, and you said, you know what, this is going to work out because God's in control. It's hard to hang out with folks that get happy about some ideas that God has given to them because a lot of people don't have vision like you've got. A lot of people don't have outlook like you have. A lot of people are not relying on testimonies from the past of how God was faithful. So when you're given something for a task, don't forget that there might not be a lot of people around you that support the good attitude that you have about things. This is what the enemy will start to say. And in Nehemiah 4, remember Nehemiah comes back, he's got a big building plan. He doesn't have great armies and hosts of people. He starts seeing the naysayers. Turn to him and say, don't be a naysayer. Mark Rutland writes about this. Sanballat completely tries to be like the enemy. And the enemy will talk to you and start to lie to you in these areas of your life too. And when you start to rebuild areas of your life, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be work. He says this, the Jews were too feeble to work. They could never fortify themselves, let alone city walls. There's no resources. Anybody felt like they have no resources before? The material from previous walls had been burned beyond usefulness. It's futile to even try. If you succeed a little at first, they said, it will come to nothing. Do you know with things in our lives and what we decide to do, and we realize that, in fact, we are qualified for the task at hand, that what we're in the middle of right now will take work, it will take struggle, it will take us going after things. The one thing that's for sure is God is on your side. He's with you. I love what Theodore Roosevelt once said. He said this about decisions. Have you ever thought this in your life about different situations? Like, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I do the wrong thing? What if I make this decision and if I fail? Theodore Roosevelt once said, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. And I think we have completely got stuck in the mud before. I'll never forget with the late prophet, Kim Clement, I was talking to him, and he said, Steve, I just have this picture of you right now. This was with ministry and not knowing what to do in things. He said, Steve, don't be afraid to make the wrong decision. Don't be afraid to make the wrong decision. And that really changed my attitude about things that we do and how we stall ourselves. Because God's not stalling you. You're stalling yourself. God's not preventing things. We're preventing growth from happening because we feel like, well, what if I do something wrong or what if I say something wrong? What's the worst thing that can happen? When you're looking at risk management for your life, just ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen here? What happens if I talk to this person? What happens if I pray about this? What happens if I give to this thing? What's the worst that can happen? 
Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Let's look there on that premise of doing the wrong thing, about action and inaction in our lives. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. We all know the story of the parable of the three servants, and it says, And again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a story of a man going on a long trip. He called together all of his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Isn't that great? God gives you that money in a portion to your, uh, to your abilities and what you have. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more bags. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they used his money. And the servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amounts, so now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, listen to this, folks. You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit your money in the bank? At least you could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered to take the money from the servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who uh, use well what they're given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have, will be taken away. Pretty crazy. Our responsibility, folks, is not to sit around and wait for God to return. I hate to tell you this. Our responsibility is to get to work. Do you remember the Israelites in Babylon when they were so confounded and so confused because they were frustrated living in Babylon? They were just frustrated people. And I think the more and more we get into this and the more we live into life, the more frustrated we get. And really what should be happening to us is there should be more joy emanating from us. As believers in Christ, we should have an anticipation of God doing great things in our lives and in our families. And I think what happens is we bury the gifts and the talents that God gives to us and we don't do a thing with them. Don't hide what God has so richly blessed you with. And whatever portion you have... Folks, by the way, don't complain about the guy with the ten bags of silver and say, I wish I had more. Use what God gave you. Don't just bury it in the sand. By the way, Brendan Manning writes this, we all have shadows and skeletons in our backgrounds. But listen, there is something bigger in this world that we are, and that something bigger is full of grace and mercy and patience and ingenuity. 
The moment the focus of your life shifts from your badness to his goodness, and the question becomes not what have I done, but what he can do, the release you from remorse can happen. Miracles of miracles. You can forgive yourself because you are forgiven. You can accept yourself because you are accepted. And you can begin to start building up the very places that you once tore down. There is a grace to help in every time of trouble. And that grace is the secret to being able to forgive ourselves and trust it. Isn't it amazing how once we realize that God has so richly blessed us and given us things, we can get off of our own badness and we can start to focus on the goodness of God and what he's given to us for our lives. There's a story several years ago in a large city in the far west and rumors spread that a certain Catholic woman was having visions of Jesus. And the reports reached the archbishop. He decided to check her out. There is always a fine line between authentic mystic and a lunatic fringe. Is it true, ma'am, that you have visions of Jesus, asked the clerk? Yes, the woman replied simply. Well, the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins I confessed in my last confession. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, Bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past? Exactly. Please call me if anything happens. Ten days later, the woman notified her spiritual leader of a recent apparition. Please come, she said. Within an hour, the archbishop arrived. He trusted eye-to-eye contact. You just told me that on the telephone that you actually had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, bishop. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins you confessed in your last confession. And the bishop leaned forward with anticipation. His eyes narrowed. What did Jesus say? She took his hand, gazed deep into his eyes. Bishop, she said, these are his exact words. I can't remember. And you know, for all of us, as we start to realize that we can't focus on our badness anymore, none is righteous, no, not one. And yet, the God of the universe calls you and I holy and separate and others, a holy priesthood, set apart. When will we start to come to the place in our lives in freedom in Christ where whomever the sun sets free is truly free indeed, and we can run this race and realize that God remembers the sins in my life no more. When will we ever get to the place of freedom where we enjoy fellowship and company with Christ? Today you can start again because you don't have to be perfect. Elizabeth Gilbert writes, The real world doesn't reward perfectionists. It rewards people who get things done. Now the Olympics is all about perfectionism. We love the Olympics right now, watching them. I love the triple sow cow and the quad sow cow. That was the record that happened. A quad sow cow, can you believe it? That's four spins on the ice, if you're into that. But that's about perfectionism, and it's about scoring, and it's about making sure that everything is in order. But can you imagine Jesus sitting on the sideline, just sitting that way, saying, Oh, you got that a little off. Oh, you got that a little off. Didn't score very good there. It would be nauseating, wouldn't it? And that's what the religious system does. The religious system scores people on their abilities and what they don't have and where they lack. But when Christ comes into the building and when Christ comes into the things of God for our life, we realize that there's a beautiful thing unfolding. Stop waiting for the perfect conditions in your life. I love what the Amplified says again. It says, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. Be diligently active and make thoughtful decisions 
for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even divide it to eight, for you do not know what the misfortune may occur on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls towards the south and towards the north, he who watches the wind, waiting for all conditions to be perfect, will not sow seed. Another thing that we're going to have to start doing, St. Aronich should come up here for this last part. We're not done yet. We're just going to point three now. I think one thing that's going to have to start happening is we're going to have to start dying to some dreams. And you say, wait, what a minute. Wait, wait, we start dying to some dreams? Absolutely. I think some of us, we can say, well, I just dream in a dream. I have a dream. I've got to do this and I want to do that. How many had some dreams early on in your life that might have been a little bit misguided and you realized that that really wasn't a dream from the Lord? That was just a selfish thing that I chased. I remember early on in ministry for me, and it was crazy, I... You know, because I was around these big successful preachers and money and doing all this stuff and all these big things. And me and my wife were talking about this and just seeing that and going, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. And I realized that that was a very selfish Steve dream. I remember when I first started out in ministry where I would always say that question, Lord, will you bring me into full-time ministry? And the Lord very graciously and lovingly said in Steve language. You know, he talks in your language. He speaks to you how you think and talk. Isn't that cool? He says, Steve, who said I was calling you to full-time ministry? Remember the countless times, not countless, but there's times where we just cry with Anne and we'd pray together just wondering what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there. And little did I know that God was taking care of of us and the vision and the path that we were to take and where we were to go and it unfolded in such beautiful ways. But you are going to have to stop or start dying to some dreams. Matthew Barnett writes this, One of the greatest days of my life was the day I decided to die to my dream of being a success and becoming alive to the dream of being a blessing. Big difference. See, we're a very success-driven culture. The world will spit you up and, you know, chew you up and spit you out. Because we're so success-oriented. We're success-driven. I realized that God was wanting me to die to the idea of being a success and really start becoming a blessing. One of the things that's hard to do in really becoming a blessing is this. Stop judging a book by its cover. I'm a book guy and I'll go to Barnes & Noble's. And one of the things I'll do is I'll look at the cover. If it's a cool cover, how many like cool covers on your books and stuff? I'll literally look at it, and I'll look at it a little bit more, and I even have to give it the smell test. Okay, that smells like a good book there. You think I'm funny. That's true. I do smell my books. But uh, it's a good smelling book. But then when you start to look at the book, no matter how cool the book looks, it's really important to unfold that thing because a lot of the books are really... Dumb books. And I really learned growing in my faith that there's a lot of pop culture preachers out there that really aren't into the things of God. They're more into the idea of success. But they're really not into the deep things of God and chasing after God at all risk and on all accountability. And I look back there, and here's the key when you're looking at a book. Look at the bibliography in the back. If there's really not many references, he probably doesn't have too much to give you. Stop judging 
a book by its cover. Love the story of David and his brothers. Remember his dad had all judged the book by the cover. And he started lining up to the prophet. He said, this is the one. This is the one here. No, this is the one. No, that's not the one. Here, this guy's handsome. He's successful. He does this. And the prophet says, wait a minute. Is there anyone else? Can you imagine your dad going, oh, David? <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> hey, guys, go get your brother, David. I don't know what this prophet is thinking. Go get the guy. David comes out and he looks at him. And realizes that the Spirit of Christ is on this young boy. And he says, that's the man. And he breaks open the flask and he pours the oil all over David. And he anoints him as king. And I want you to know that, folks, that's not a very safe thing, what happened there. And see, we think once God's anoint us, that we just walk around and float on a cloud, and God blesses us and people start throwing money at us, and we're just blessed at every side of the street. Folks, that was a death sentence for David from that point on. I don't know if you know the story of David, but he ran for his life because of a jealous king. The center of God's will is not the safest place. It's the most dangerous place. The goal in life for all of us, when we start judging books by its cover, we start looking for quick outs and quick things, and we say, well, this will work, and we don't really dive in and realize that God might put you into some hard struggles for your life. God might put you into areas that you might not see on the outside, but God has already seen from the inside. And that selfish ambition in chasing our dreams of success, Craig Rochelle writes, one of the quickest ways to forget about God is to be consumed with self. We are called not to celebrate and promote or advance ourselves, but we are called to deny ourselves. Stop dreaming, folks, and start being a blessing. Stop dreaming about what it could be and what it could be. It ain't going to be until you get off your fanny and start blessing people. You can do something you can be something, you can get something, you have a brain, you have hands, you have a feet, and you've got a mouth. Why don't you close your eyes, I want to read this little story here as we close with this. Philip Yancey wrote about some people who chose to do something. A millionaire entrepreneur named Millard Fuller grew disillusioned with the corporate rat race and challenged by the radical minister Clarence Jordan, abandoned his life and luxury and founded an organization to build houses for those who can't afford one. Habitat for Humanity recently celebrated its 100,000th completed home. Devout Presbyterian named Jack McConnell invented the time test for tuberculosis. He helped develop Tylenol and MRI imaging and then came out of retirement to recruit retired physicians to staff free medical clinics for the poor. Dane Sinsley Saunders enrolled in medical school in the Middle Age because authorities told her in this profession people only listen to doctors. She never really practiced medicine, but instead ignited the modern hospice movement, ushering a new way of caring for the dying. He says, I came away impressed by the role that ordinary citizens fueled by faith can play in advancing the causes 
of justice and mercy. Folks, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I pray today that we start dying to some dreams and start becoming alive for blessing. I say today that we, in all of our imaginations and all of our things of what could be and how this could be perfect and how this could be better and how if this would fix and that would fix, I am telling you that right now where you're at, you, can, you are blessed to be a blessing and God wants to use you. But you will have to adjust and you will have to change some habits and you will have to change some things you say and you will have to change how things have been in your life. Today, just know this, believer, God is not looking for perfect people. He's not looking for people who've got it figured out. He's not looking for people who've graduated from seminary. He's looking for people who are wanting to be used of God in their life. And today, maybe you've been clouded by that. And maybe you've been the person that's come in here and said, I, I'm broke. I'm hurting, I'm confused, I'm frustrated, whatever it may be. And you get up out of your chair every week and you go back to the same place where you came from and you're still the same way. Today you don't have to be that. Today you can allow the Savior of the universe to heal you. You can allow the Savior of the universe to guide you in all truth. And the confusion that you face. Today you can become a blessing. With every head bowed and every eye closed. This call is for non-perfect people. And you say, you know what? I'm ready to start being a blessing. And I know that's a very general call. I don't want it, mean it to be like that. But just it's maybe spoke to you very specifically. However the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now. In that area, you just want to respond to that and say, God, I don't want to be a success in the world since I want to be a blessing. Today, Lord, may this church be marked from this day forward on as a hospital. Today, Lord, may this place be a place where we can see people broken and confused and hurting and they have honest questions. They don't have solutions and they're trying to figure things out. They're just messed up and it's okay. And we're okay with it and we're comfortable with it. Forgive us, Lord, for maybe giving off that odor of perfectionist. Forgive us, Lord, for that odor of the Pharisees. If we kind of walk around with our nose kind of up spiritually, I, Lord, forgive us. Help us to not be a museum, Lord, where we talk about relics and things of the past, but help us, Father, to, to be a hospital where there's life, and there's energy and there's focus and people become the important thing once again. 
Today, if that's you and you say, today I'm getting off the perfect horse. I want to be a blessing right now. I want to be used of God in some areas of my life that I've completely left behind. Why don't you raise your hand today? I want to pray with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what to pray, folks, or how to pray, but I want to tell you folks that have raised your hand just now that God's going to work those things out in your life. And that simple gesture of just simply raising my hand and acknowledging that, crying out to God, God hears that. And Lord, we just ask God that you would provide healing to those areas. Lord, we would be able to hear your still, still small voice again. Lord, I thank you for this church, which is a not-so-perfect church, with not-so-perfect people, but that love you with all of their hearts. I pray a blessing, Father, over those that have raised their hands. God, I ask that you minister to them in a way they've never been ministered to before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Folks, God's going to do a great work through you. He's going to bless you. Just make sure next week you come in here showing a couple scars, talking to some people about some problems, and some situations going on, so we can open up and be a testimony to those around us. Sometimes the greatest thing we can do is talking to people about our struggles and our pain and allowing God to provide healing for that. Amen? Love you so much.